Turns out all we need to do is play Chelsea every week. 6-0 aggregate scoreline in the home and away ties in this uh, in this Premier League. And uh, we're up to seventh for Dreams Alive. Well, the Premier League table is so compressed. Chelsea in fourth on 41 points. I think you can go all the way down to Burnley in something like 12th on uh, 35 points, is it? Or 34 points. It's the, 34 and 11th, yep. Yeah, it's uh, really, really compressed. and Just a few wins either way. And uh, United in big trouble or, or getting into contention for the Champions League. I mean, this is a super, super win. And absolutely abysmal, abysmal game in the first half. I mean, that was a relegation so six-pointer all over it. That was just, just these two teams. You wouldn't, like, honestly, if you watch that game... With no context, you'd you'd be like, oh, these two teams are in big trouble. That's terrible. And United really picked up in the second and then just looked a lot more confident. And and Chelsea, strangely toothless, although I, I guess with your mate Mitsu Bashiai up front. What's his name, sorry? What was that? Yeah, I completely <laughs> brutalised it, didn't I? Um, <laughs> your mate up front. Yeah. Uh, perhaps not surprising they were a bit toothless. Are you saying Mitsu Batuayi plays at Stanford Bridge, Ed? Is that what's... Yeah, oh, bad. You know what? I should stop doing social media because I make one mistake <laughs> per social media post. <laughs> you do It's because I'm rushing it mainly. Yeah, I feel like I, you I, do them I, early I, I did a preview for the women's game uh, at the weekend. It's not until next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad times. Bad times over on NQAT pod Instagram. Um, it, what it looked like to me is two teams that are like 35 points off the top of the league playing each other, um, which, of course, it is as Chelsea in yes, fourth. Yes, and, and, and in normal seasons, that would be putting you in a relegation six-pointer. I mean, it's absolutely insane. Like you said, that, that Burnley have got 34 points. That is genuinely only just less than the gap between... First and fourth. It's an absolutely ridiculous league season. Anyway, um, yeah, it, the ho- the first half was just unwatchable. Just sat there like slightly moody about having to watch it and then do a podcast about it after a long working day. And then, uh, and also all the way through the first half, this is just my agenda being out in the open as if, as if that's a surprise in any way. All the way in the first half, I'm watching Martial who's playing... Like they're playing these weird split centre forwards, basically, where they're, they're essentially playing a left winger and a right winger and calling it two up front. And Martial keeps getting the ball literally on his own with no one for miles around him and he can't do anything. And I'm just waiting, knowing there's going to be so much Martial criticism in a game where he couldn't possibly have done anything. And then he did that fully top draw centre forward work. Absolutely brilliant yeah. run across the I mean, half I'm talking, talking to those forwards. Daniel James was rubbish in this game. I mean, he's been rubbish for months, let's be honest. Nice, nice kid, but he's not he's not done anything to justify being in the team other than he's just alive, I guess, because yeah, Mason Greenwood, uh, apparently not in Solskjaer's good books at the moment, uh, can't get a sniff when, when James is playing so badly, but... Yeah, Martial had one of those kind of frustrating halves, didn't he? When he's uh, the flicks didn't come off, the passes didn't come off. Uh, at times he's not moving great. At times he is. I mean, it, it's just he. I mean, look, there were a couple of occasions where he's just standing. He was crouched, hands on both knees at one point. I'm like, what are you doing? Move, move. I mean, we've got we've now got someone in Bruno Fernandes who can find a pass. I mean, he he wasn't really very heavily involved in that first half, but can and and you want to make some space for him anyway. So it's pretty frustrating. But then uh, just uh, just out of nothing, I mean, well, well, let, let's let's roll it back a little bit. So Martial did the prep work by doing Rudiger with the pointy elbow. Nice work, uh, and then Christensen. Christiansen, sorry. And uh, then um, uh, Wan-Bazaka, nice sort of drag back from... It looked like he was cutting back inside to lay it back and and then just whips over the cross, which is the thing we are wanting him to do. And he's doing and it he better. Seems to, he's doing it better. He's growing into that as the seasons wore on and it's just a fine ball. And then Martial's got in front of the defender and it's a lovely header. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I get why you might have been frustrated in the first half, but a lot of the stuff I was frustrated by was just the total lack of support that he had, you know. Um, and Fernandez, I thought he didn't have the ball that much, but he definitely looked an absolute cut above when he was on the ball. Just his ability to move the ball sort of insightfully was was quite telling. And, of course, he looked an absolute cut above in the second half with a couple of cracking set pieces one after the other. And if it turns what, out... What that, do you mean that Phil Jones can't do that from corners? If um, if it turns out that Bruno Fernandes is the new David Beckham, I shall be very pleased indeed. Because And I, I sent that message to a couple of people just, um, just up with the free kick that hit the post. Right. And that was literally about a minute before uh, he put in that absolutely brilliant corner, which Maguire, that's... You know, that's the dream, isn't it? Maguire powering in and nodding one into the bottom corner. Absolutely tremendous. Tremendous both yeah, goals. I'm, I'm not sure yet that Bruno Fernandes is going to really dominate games in midfield. I mean, he may do. He doesn't seem like he's that kind of player to me. But his quality in the final third, in terms of finding space, finding a pass, and clearly from set pieces, which is not the thing that was talked about um, him bringing to the club particularly uh, is is great, and he, he strikes the ball really cleanly uh, from those dead balls or from anywhere around that final third, uh, including that free kick that hit the post. Uh, and he's he looks like he'll be a good addition, like a two games. So um, who knows? Anyway, our, our other new signing, of course, um, came on to prove that he won't be a good addition. One great chance, and he he blew it. Totally blew it. Yeah, tough, tough situation to uh, come Shipping on. But back. I, the dream was alive for that in that moment. The the absolute fairy tale scenes were alive. Um, yeah, and I have to say, I was like, I was sl- I realised as he toe poked it into the keeper's arms that I may have slightly bought into the dream narrative a little too deeply because I was entirely convinced he was going to pull out like a really deft looking finish. Just like, oh no, actually, wait a minute, I remember this guy. He's like. He's fine, you know. He's fine. He could do some stuff sometimes. Anyway, obviously not the not the ideal situation to come on in your first game with like two minutes left and have a chance fall to you. And the keeper did well to Willie Caballero, not Kepper, who is no longer the keeper. Um, what a weird game of football. So let's talk about Chelsea's two Vard goals. Obviously, right. the second one's just binary, even though. God, who who cares? Oh, the correct decision's been reached. Who cares? Like, who? Football's so hard and it's it's hard to score goals and the offside rule was not meant for this. This is not what it was meant for. Anyway, that's fine. We all know that. But the first- no, but the, the Premier League has decided that offside is offside and it is binary. Sure. So, yep. So there, there we are. Yeah, I. Uh, there, there's been a lot of talk in in recent weeks about um, introducing some kind of level of tolerance. They took it to the Premier League board. I don't think it was agreed, or they haven't. Maybe it hasn't gone that far yet. Uh, I don't really understand the tolerance. Doesn't it just shift the line? Well, exactly. I mean, w- which way would the tolerance go there? So, so Giroud would have been on because it was about half of his foot that was offside. But ten centimeter tolerant. How big's his foot? <laughs> but if two thirds of his foot was offside, then he'd be offside. That's all the nonsense. We know this. The first goal, though, I just thought it was straight up weird. Like, at first, well, it does look like a foul, but but who fouled whom first? Exactly. And th- th- so, if it's a foul, why isn't it a penalty? If the goal's chalked off, why isn't it a penalty? I mean, first of all, Nemanja Matic has got his arms wrapped round two Chelsea players as the move starts. I mean. Presumably all the refs saw that when they were looking at the VAR business. And then when it was, who was it? Was it Christensen that was that did the shove? I can't remember anyway, one of those Chelsea players. Um, so he's clearly shoved into his shove. Now he extends the shove with his arms, but he's falling forwards at the point at which he fouls, in inverted commas, Brandon Williams. Yeah, I, I, though I think his shove was significantly bigger than the shove he he got, and I don't, I don't think he's like falling forwards and protecting himself. No, no, no. He's no, accidentally. No. He's trying to shove Brandon Williams. Now he's got a little bit of help along the way. <laughs> yeah, 
And I, I don't know. I, it was, it was a ve- I thought it was a very strange decision. I was watching yeah. it thinking, that's going to be weird if it gets chalked off. Uh, I, I don't, well, I wasn't surprised it was chalked off because it's clearly a foul. It's just there was so much else going on. The other one that was clearly a foul, of course, was uh, Harry Maguire trying to perform a vasectomy live on Stamford Bridge pitch. Uh, <laughs> rather unpleasant that, wasn't it? Yeah, Stamford Bridge, more like. I mean, he just kicked him in the knackers. Like he did, he yeah. fully just. At first, I saw it. I thought, oh, it's an accident. He's trying to protect himself. No, no, he's just kicked him in the balls. And, and as as producer Tom said, this only because he's Harry Maguire, England's brave Rose, that he's not got sent off for that. Because there's nothing about that that wasn't a sending off. I mean, they showed. I don't know if it was at halftime or during the thing. They showed the Hyunmin Song one on Rudiger as well. By the way, poor guy. Um, the. Uh, the the human song one and it's just like exactly the same basically and uh, that was an egregious failing of var i thought because there's no subtlety or question mark about it he just extends his leg out to kick him in the knackers he, and he successfully did it as well <laughs> yeah yeah one of the two successful shots on target that Aaron maguire managed in that game uh, one with his head, obviously. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed Bruno's set pieces in the second half. It got very feisty, that game. I can't understand why Chelsea were frustrated. The bit where um, Fred was trying to protect Martial from being murdered when he was on the ground was quite good, I thought. Yeah, look, yeah, Chelsea were definitely frustrated. Two goals chalked off. Um, they they didn't feel like they got the decision with Maguire. There was the, uh, the dive by Willian in the first half, although... I mean, it's a 50-50 one as well. It's, it's, it is a dive, but players are allowed to hurdle an oncoming challenge as well. So it, I, you, can, you can see why they probably feel a bit aggrieved. Yeah, uh, no question. And, and it, it just did feel like we got the rub of the green all game, but oh, I'll take it. We'd have been ninth if we hadn't won this game. Yeah, well, yeah, t- 2-0 we at Stamford Bridge on 0.66 XG. How many XG did Chelsea get? 0.89. Right. Um, High quality game, folks. <laughs> just very poor chance creation. The uh, the ostracism of uh, the ostracism of Olivier Giroud seems very weird to me. Like, but anyway, that's that's some other podcast problem. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, he. Well, look. He he wanted to go, didn't he? He wanted to go almost anywhere. I mean, it's the Euros in the summer. He's not going to be in the France squad coming off the bench now and again. He hasn't played since November or something insane like that. Have you met so. Didier Deschamps, by the way? He, you boldly proclaiming that Olivier Giroud's not going to be in the France squad. Mm. <laughs> we'll see. On verra. On verra. Um, but yeah, so uh, I didn't, what else is there to say about this game? It was It's a fantastic win. Two really good goals. Fernandez did well. I thought Fred was lively and good. Daniel James was not very good, but at least he looks fit again. All the players sort of looked somewhat refreshed. I thought you could really see the effect that the break had, had They've had a couple of weeks off, um, yeah. Which is good. Do, yeah. It's good. And and I was going to say that <laughs> I was going to say the football qual- the quality of football will benefit uh, from that, but apparently there's there's not really apparently actually any evidence of that. Well, look, one one thing I say is United defended pretty well. I mean, Chelsea were reduced to a lot of little half chances, not too much clear cut, apart from the the two that got chalked off, of course. And uh, but there were a lot of blocks, a couple of absolutely last ditch desperate tackles from Wan Bazaka, uh, and one from who was it right at the end who got in there as well. Uh, Eric Bailly put on that that tackle. Eric Bailly, that was... Eric Bailly, yes, and they were celebrating that one because that was uh, that was awesome. Yeah, there was as a, well one nice tackle from Maguire, and then Eric Bailly proving once and for all that he is the greatest centre for centre back in United's history by uh, stealing the ball off an opposition player in the box, dropping his shoulder, and I think doing about seventy five percent of what you need to do to call, to be called a Cruyff turn in the right. <laughs> in the box. He's just. He is a special, glorious talent, and we should protect him at all costs. Mostly, yeah, it has to be said mostly, from himself. Yeah. I, I can't, can't remember what his contract situation is. It's has he got one more year after this? 
No idea. Absolutely no I can, idea. I can't remember. Yeah, I think maybe that's that's true. So it'll be interesting to see what United do about that, given his injury record. Yeah, absolutely. All right, should we take a quick break and then come back and talk about some unbelievably depressing news, some very sad news and uh, some uh, news which I believe uh, the term schadenfreude probably covers. All right, let's do that. If you want more from us, the people what brought you this here podcast, you can follow us on various social media platforms. Ed is on Twitter at NQATPod. You can find us on Facebook at uh, No Question About That Podcast, formerly United Rant. Cheers, Facebook. Or my personal platform of choice, you can follow us on Instagram at NQATPod. Okay, so I guess we'll, we'll talk about the kind of the, the most... The, the the news that's very sad news, um, uh, but lots of tributes flooding in today um, because of the passing of Harry Gregg and the the phrase hero gets bandied around a lot in football terms and of course legend as well. But Harry Gregg was unquestionably both of those things a a bona fide United uh, great in his time, um, just a great on the world stage in his time. And uh, and of course, a, a genuine hero as a human being, um, given given his uh, remarkable behaviour after the plane crash. Yeah, well, neither of us are of uh, of the age to remember the fifty eight crash, but of course, we know all about um, the team that was lost there and and Harry Gregg's role in in saving those who might otherwise have perished. You know, diving into a burning plane to pull people out. And and, so, and went on to play again for United two weeks later, when when the rest of the team was in hospital and and United were a club on their knees. Kept a clean sheet as well. I mean, he always said that he didn't want to be remembered. As, he wanted to be remembered as a footballer and not a hero, which is perhaps not surprising, given given the age and his age and the kind of personality profile that you would expect of a person whose activity whose kind of incredible level of selflessness meant that with all the adrenaline and shock and agony and sadness flowing through his system, he went in multiple times to a burning plane, pulling out multiple survivors, including uh, Bobby Charlton, Jackie Blancheflower, his international teammate, um, Dennis Violette, and um, a woman called Vera Lukic, the pregnant wife of a Yugoslav diplomat, and her two-year-old daughter, Vesna. And he just... It's one of those moments. <clears throat> it's one of those moments where you you imagine the reality of that, and just the kind of chaos and confusion and fear to have the kind of presence of mind, or if not the presence of mind, the instinct, the altruistic in- instinct to go into action and, and save people. And there's something about uh, you know the fact that he's a goalkeeper and never made more valuable saves than that, of course. Right. And he'd only just transferred to United a couple of months earlier, a world record fee for a keeper at that time. So obviously United thought an awful lot of him and and he was only still just getting to know his his teammates. Uh, he, he ended up uh, playing for United in the cup final that year, of course. And the, I'm sure you've seen, uh, I'm sure it's on YouTube, uh, the footage of that. Um, the kind of challenge from Nat Lofthouse to score one of the goals. That would definitely be chalked off by far these days. <laughs> yeah, it would. And, you know, in terms of his football career, so he um, he kind of stayed at United mostly throughout like the big rebuild after Munich um, and uh, left in 1966. Um, uh, he was injured for the 63 Cup final. Um, and it was... You know, sixty six, sixty seven was when uh, when we we won the league, and he was injured a lot in sixty four, sixty five when we we won the league as well. So didn't get to play. But I think probably his crowning achievement as a footballer was um, was a remarkable one. In the night, Northern Ireland qualified for the um, nineteen fifty eight World Cup, and they did absolutely brilliantly. Um, and they they uh, they got to the quarterfinals uh, of that World Cup in Sweden, which Brazil went on to win. And he was voted the best goalkeeper of the tournament. And that is, what, that's six months, if that, after the Munich air disaster. So 
genuinely just unbelievable. Northern Ireland, that whole Northern Ireland story is kind of amazing because they they lost important players um, or players who lost their career rather than their lives, but still lost important players in in that Munich air, air crash. And yeah, but so so we thought we should take a moment and probably leave on a on a football note, given that that's what he wanted to be remembered for. Now, a story which uh, is much murkier and depressing rather than sad, which I, I feel like treading very lightly around, and not for any like nonsense legal reasons, um, but because of kind of ignorance, really, and not being kind of fully, fully, fully up to speed on it. Um, but this story about Solskjaer and uh, Bakary Saar and uh, uh, Ben Rumsby in The Telegraph uh, writing a story that the uh, woman involved in that case said that Solskjaer shouldn't be leading anyone, let alone a, a team like Manchester United, based on the way he's behaved. Um, what what do you know about this story? Ed? Right. Well, look, no, no, uh, no insider information, obviously, but this dates back to a time when uh, Saar was signed um, uh, for Mulder and uh, there was an accusation of, of rape. And um, he continued to play for Mulder under Solskjaer um, until at some point uh, Saar's agent, Jim Solbakken, Solskjaer's friend, um, and uh, a um, a partner in elite sports who have just helped United do the deal for Igalo and happened to be the agents of Josh King, all very incestuous, this one, managed to get the player out to to Russia um during during this period of of um of investigation and uh, i think believe the player is now playing in qatar or saudi arabia another country without an extradition warrant um he the player himself was uh, um underwent trial they have this system in norway where there's one pro- professional judge and two lay judges he was found not guilty um but um was uh, on the balance of probabilities, was deemed guilty enough by the professional judge uh, to have to pay a fine. Um, so, you know, it's, Norwegian law clearly allows for this sort of really grey area. And, and one of the reasons why it doesn't reflect well on Solskjaer is that, you know, although he, he and as he is, he doesn't really, he hasn't really said much about it despite being questioned. Um, but I'm sure he would argue that the player was sort of innocent until proven guilty. Um, he has continued to play a player um, who's been accused, and it turns out, it seems, credibly accused of a very, very serious crime. And that doesn't reflect well on Mulder, Solbach and the agent who got the player out, or Solskjaer, the manager who played him. So one of the really shocking things about this is I believe Saar captain. I mean, it's all shocking. But unless I'm mistaken, the thing I read today is that Sara captained the club a couple of times, captained the side a couple of times under Solskjaer while all this was going on. And so he was asked about it by the, the journalist who wrote the article that I mentioned earlier. And he said, I think I can only answer... This is, I'm quoting from, uh, I think, sadly, because this was the transcript I found uh, from the Daily Mail's coverage of the press conference today. I think I can only answer what I've done through the club. This is a case going through the legal system in Norway. You've got to respect that legal route there. He was then pressed and said, I just answered the reply. I understand how difficult this situation is. You don't want anyone to be in such a situation. And every part involved in that case, they don't have a good time. But that's my answer. Now, I understand that this probably uh, reads even worse than it sounded. Um, And I also understand that it's, difficult to find the right language around this but my god this is messed up like it's really ugly and just gross and just sickening really the whole thing is just sickening and and the kind of um you know innocent until proven guilty is important as a kind of legal framework but that's just it just doesn't seem it just doesn't seem right in a situation like this that you would put someone in a position where they're an integral member of a of a team that's a, an 
I don't mean every player's got to yeah. be a role model, but the whole anyway, the whole thing I found it very sickening, and it really soured me on on Solskjaer in general. I think. Well, look, this is. I mean, it's it's not new any of this, no. but but um, the the reason why it's it's very troubling. I think Daniel Harris a couple of years a couple of weeks ago, the writer Guardian writer Daniel Harris said this alone could disqualify. Solskjaer as being United manager. And I, th- I think, in fact, we were talking about this uh, on the previous podcast. It certainly could. And the the reason why it hasn't done is, one, either United didn't know about it, didn't do their due diligence or didn't care or thought they could get away with it because um, it wouldn't be covered. But now, now it has sort of been brought to the fore again and we're discussing it. It could cause United, who are an extremely conservative organisation, some significant pause for thought. Just putting aside um, commentary about Solskjaer's performance as a manager, which in normal circumstances would have been enough to get him fired anyway, um, it may well be that that United have a think about this and and wonder whether they really want the 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 association with a manager who it seems has made some very poor choices. Yeah, absolutely. And and like you say, it's it's not new. And, you know, I'm quite surprised not to have come across this story before, but it, it just goes to show how far down the pecking order this kind of story is when it comes to footballers. You know, how quickly, like, rape is just ignored left, right and centre and people just want to make jokes about it. And don't want to don't want to deal with the reality of it, and and the whole kind of question of guilty and not guilty, and and what a kind of gross mess the whole thing is. Um, so yeah, anyway, I just I, I was super bummed out, and I, I think whether it, it the argument that it could disqualify Solskjaer um, from being a manage, United manager is one thing. The, the argument for me is that it should. I think. It feels to me like it should. That that does that feels like this is not the world that we should live in. This is not the way that people should behave. This is there is a a a, a broad responsibility and there's loads of grey area. And I don't know exactly. You could say, okay, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I might not have a good answer for every single one of them. But it doesn't mean that the thing doesn't seem so vile and obvious. Anyway, that's. I'm sure this. I'm sure there's more to come from this story. Well, I don't know if I am sure there's more to come from this story. Actually, no. I think people did, uh, and uh, Duncan Castles has spoken about it quite a lot. Um, and I, I just think it's the association. It's it's not just Solskjaer's decisions and the club's decision at the time, uh, and because it may well a lot of it may well have been out of his hands. Uh, but also Solskjaer's association with Jim Solbecken uh, and the fact that United now do deals with this guy. Um, it, it's uh, it's not very savoury. Uh, and for a very conservative club, I'm sure, and, you know, conservative or otherwise, um, it's not savoury. Um, but I just think for United, they are very conscious about uh, their... Uh, they're, if not conscious about the quality of the product on the pitch, they're very conscious about their image. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll hear okay. more. Another story that we'll hear more from, well, another story that Patreon backers will hear more from us about anyway, is uh, the Pep Guardiola, it's not Pep Guardiola, it's the Man City FPP, FFP thing, um, which we're going to do bonus content about, but we should just briefly touch on it. They've been banned yeah. and it looks to me like they're going to stay banned. European competition and Cass have got a bit of a history of trying to get these decisions through quickly so that they don't um, use the appeal process to delay the effect of the punishment. Well, especially in high profile cases like this. So, yeah, I mean, like um, we are going to go into some depth. What I'd say is uh, this is this is not the financial side of things. So previously City got a 49 million euro sanction for breaching FFP spending regulations you know sort of bog standard ffp uh, much of it was suspended and then they came back into compliance uh, after serving that sanction uh, or paying that fine and serving a year with a smaller squad as in 2014 this one is for lying 
to UEFA about that period, 2012 to 2016, and it was uncovered by football leaks. This, uh, this uh, well, seems hacker, Jao Pinto, who's currently uh, in Portugal facing 147 charges of hacking, um, and uh, but including an awful lot of communications, which was uh, then released to the media, and, and uh, Spiegel um, a couple of years ago published some really in-depth stuff about it. And... Like, they have been caught with their hands in a cookie tin. Let's be clear about this one. Uh, they absolutely set about trying to subvert um, how uh, UEFA could bring them into sanction, bring them into line under FFP. Uh, they shifted money around through third parties, both to players in terms of wages um, and to the club. Uh, and and you know they, two years I think frankly for this kind of level of cheating is quite we'll light. talk um, a lot more yeah. about that in about twenty we minutes. We will. Um, but the but it could have some really big ramifications both for Pep as you you mentioned, but also for City. I mean, uh, how many players? Um, well, a story today going around that they've been offered a, effectively the the discount off their wages for not being in the Champions League. They've been offered that as bonuses to stay with the club. But there must be many players thinking. Uh, you know, I maybe it's time to move on. Absolutely. And, you know, Pep, you would have thought it was kind of questionable anyway. But they didn't so much get caught with their hand in the cookie jar as caught writing a load of emails about how they were planning to steal loads of cookies and then taking photos of themselves with their hands in the cookie jar and pointing at it. That's right. I mean, they're just so bold My, and brazen. It's it's followed up it afterwards with, with a PR campaign, which I have to say is deeply disrespectful of UEFA. And... Many people listening might go, well, I mean, you know, are you for deserving of respect? And that's kind of a, another question, but they they are seeking to, they, they are, they are, what, what they're doing is a kind of very Brexity, very Trumpy way of tackling a problem, which is to deny, obfuscate, lie, and flat out lie, I have to say, and we'll come on to some more of that. Um, and and just shout and shout and shout and shout, but but I don't think that's going to do much good at CAS or the Swiss High Court if they go that far. Um, my friend Steve Burns saying to me, uh, "This is all very. Are you taking notes on a criminal conspiracy?" I might have cleaned up the language there somewhat, but anyway, we'll talk more <laughs> about that in the bonus content. Um, there we got before we take another quick break. There's there's something that I wanted to to put into the show first and. Honestly, this is a very abrupt change of tone and direction for what's been a very kind of heavy and serious period of the show. This is easily, easily, easily in my top three interviews that we've done since we started doing interviews on this show. Um, I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but Lego have brought out a uh, an Old Trafford, a Lego Old Trafford set. And it's on its way here in the post right now it's due to arrive on wednesday and it's all i can do not to just cancel everything in my diary for the rest of the week so um i haven't had hands on with it yet but we'll uh we'll, we'll let you know whether it's good or not spoiler warning i think it's gonna be really good but anyway um we thought it would just be fun to uh to talk to the uh the lead designer we reached out to lego to see if this would i, I was honestly this was a massive punt on my part. I just thought, well, I'll send them an email and see what happens. And they were like, so cool. And they hooked me up with a chat with their lead designer, Michael Psyche. And honestly, if you... Uh, basically, this conversation went almost exactly as I hoped it would go. At some points, we get slightly nerdy about Lego. But uh, generally speaking, it was just lovely to to have a chat with somebody who clearly really loves their job and is super passionate about the project. So we're absolutely delighted to be joined uh, by Michael Psyche um, to chat about the the new Lego Old Trafford set, which I know we we got. We're quite honestly, we're quite cynical about a lot of United's brand tie-ins, but we've parked entirely parked our cynicism for this one. It's like a exception to the rule um, because it's Lego and Lego is awesome. <laughs> so um, so. Uh, where where does a process like this start, Michael? How how does it how does it begin? Well, first I just want to say thanks for having me on, um, oh, and I'm glad you guys are excited about the Lego set. Um, it was really really fun to make, so I'm excited to see people get excited for it as much excellent. as we were when we were making it. Uh, the the process of starting on this model actually 
it's a, it's a quite long and convoluted story of how we got here from the very first idea. And it actually just started out as a discussion maybe three years ago now of could Lego do sports? Is, is it too divisive or could we do something in the realm of sports? And we're just talking like totally vague now, not even, not even thinking about what sport could we do? How could we do something about that sport? But could we tap into people's passion for sport? And that's where the journey really started with uh, what ended up with the old Trafford stadium. Um, and along the way, we got we got into the idea of stadiums just because there's such a more permanent fixture. You know, I mean, clubs clubs have players come in and clubs have players go out and guys do great and guys do bad. They have good seasons, they have bad seasons, but the, the stadium is there hopefully for a long time. And I mean, Old Trafford now is what, 110 years old. So you can see just from that that there's some of these places that have just existed forever and have become such icons of the sport. So, so we kind of narrowed ourselves down to, okay, let's look at stadiums. Um, and then from there, this is maybe, maybe too controversial. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. <laughs> but the thing that inspired me the most is I saw a build of Anfield that someone had made. Boo, and I remember, and, yeah, boo, boo, boo. Uh, <laughs> but I saw it and I thought, you know, that's actually a lot cooler than I would have imagined a Lego model of Anfield to be. Mm. And it just got me thinking, if Anfield can if Anfield can turn out so cool, then I know we can make something incredible. So that was that was what got us started on kind of let's do a big stadium. Mm. And from there we started to we started to create a list of okay, who are who are the big names? And Manchester United was just immediately on that list from the start. And we, we just had so much excitement of Manchester United. Um, one of the things that we struggle with is we want to get our products that are out there and appealing to people all over the world. So yeah. there's a lot of sports we see that they they have huge followings, but it actually gets very localized to either a continent or a country. Uh, but but Manchester United just seems to transcend all of that. We see fans, we, we meet fans all over the world that are just so excited about what we've done. So uh, it, it really was just, the, the more we thought about it, that was just the perfect model to start with. Um, not to say that we'll do more. Uh, I hope we will, but I'm not allowed to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> so So that was how we got down to the idea of let's make Manchester United, let's make Old Trafford as a Lego set. Um, and then from there, my job was to figure out exactly how do we build it. And the thing I started with, because because I think that the the pitch is kind of, well, you could say the pitch is a pretty important part of a football stadium, but it's yeah. kind of the heart, right? So, so that's where we started from working out what will work really well in Lego dimensions, uh, taking taking the dimensions of what the pitch is at Old Trafford. What will that? What will work well when we scale it to Lego dimensions? that will be a reasonable size. There, there are some people that tell us, oh, we should have made it in the scale for minifigures, which I think would be about... Oh, so you'd 20, have 11, 11 sides on the pitch of yeah, the little yeah, figures? Yeah, but I think, okay. that would have, I think that would have been about 500,000 Lego bricks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. We're not, uh, that wasn't really the market that we were going for with this one. So, so we actually decided to scale it down to being something that's still big and impressive. I don't know, have you... Have you seen the model in person or have you just seen images of it or what's... So by the time this goes out, I hope I'm going to have seen the model in person. I haven't yet. Um, okay. But, um, but I've seen pictures and yeah. I'm well, when you thrill. when you see the model, it's big. It's quite big compared to Lego sets. We're most Lego sets. We have almost 4,000 pieces in this one. Wow. So you're going to need a serious space to display it, but it's not so big that you lose all hope of ever putting it somewhere in your house. <laughs> so th that was our goal was we wanted it to be big and impressive that people see it and they go, wow, that's amazing. But we also didn't want people to see it and say, my wife will never let me put that anywhere or, you know, I'll never have space in my apartment or whatever it is. We wanted people to feel like this is something that they could achieve and put on display in their home and be proud of it. So what do you, when you, when you're at the kind of, you've, you've got to the point where you worked out roughly what the scale is going to be what's what's the next step in the design process how do you how do you begin to create something like that out of what 
you know, take us take us right to the, the beginning of the process in that sense. So what I the first thing I did then once I sorted out that scale is I took a satellite view of Old Trafford and just printed that out. So I had roughly the layout of how big things would need to be, where where the different roof supports would go and all that. And then I started just by building up a field that would fit in there. And then the the first thing that I knew was going to be a real challenge was how do we capture all of the seats in this place? I guess it's something... I don't remember the exact number. I think it's over 76,000, maybe just below. Yeah, it's around but there. 76,000 seats is a lot. Yeah. And one one option was would be to just make make stands that were totally smooth, but we felt like that didn't really capture the scale of Old Trafford very well. So we were we were looking at, you know, do we do we make like an individual step of a Lego brick for every row of seats, but when we did that, we ended up with far too few rows of seats in the stadium. And right. even though from afar it would look like Old Trafford and it would look good, when you get up close, you don't get that sense of scale of just how how uh, massive of a place this is. So mm-hmm. we ended up using, um, we used a one-by-two profile brick. Sorry, we're really getting into the nerdy no, details listen, of Lego. Please, please what be, I do. Feel, feel free to yeah. do exactly that. So so we we found, we have this classic brick. It's a one-by-two brick that has all these lines, vertical lines on one side. So when we took that brick and rotated it and then used those lines to represent the rows of seats, we create this really, really beautiful look in the stadium that looks like there's rows and rows and rows upon rows of seats, all really, really tiny. And it just does such an incredible job of showing that scale of how big the stadium is. So so once we figured that out, then we could build out. So we had the field, then we could build out all of the seats all the way around. And then from there, work out how do we support these seats? And then how do we, how do we build the facades and the roofs and all that? So it was kind of, um, it was actually a little bit like the real stadium was built because we start with the field and then we built first tier of seats all the way around, figured out, okay, how do we get that supported? How do we get it all fitting in right? And then we just kept on building up and up and up until we end up with the whole stadium. So it was, it was really fun to make. One of the, one of the things that was really challenging with old Trafford is it doesn't have a lot of, symmetry and repetition in the stadium absolutely like even even between the east and west ends the the facades are totally different uh the the sides of them are totally different and so there there was no part of it where i would i would build something to say right i've solved this i'll just repeat (laughs) that on the other side it's i go to the other side and say oh no now i have a different problem over here so uh it it made it quite a challenge to design the model but i think in the end it makes it a lot more fun to build because every part you're building is really quite unique to that section of the stadium uh, yeah because of course it's such a higgledy-biggledy sort of stuck together bolted together stadium isn't it it's not yeah. designed from scratch to be the size that it is now and you know but i think that's one of the things that's i've, I've been now twice to the stadium one once as i was working on the model and another time after that Right. Just kind of go in and look at all the details and understand how how all of the different parts connect and look at what the materials are and the colors. Uh, and it's it reminds me now my my favorite sport is baseball. I grew up in upstate New York cheering for the Yankees. And right. being the first time I was in Old Trafford, it reminded me a lot of that stadium just because of the history and like the the building on and the way that things change over time and develop and you still have the old parts with the new built on top. And it was just an incredible feeling to be there and see all that. And I I think you can see some stadiums that have been built. uh, You you see stadiums that are built, you know, opening in these last couple of years, they're amazing and they look beautiful and they're great to sit in and they're great to watch a match, but it doesn't have that same feeling of history that you get in a place like old Trafford. And I think that's one of the reasons it, works so well as a lego model that it's so so iconic and so unique that you really cannot mistake it for anything but what it is yeah it's interesting because when when you're talking about it the um i i've made a couple of films in my life and, and documentaries and whenever you're in the editing suite making cutting them together you feel this 
odd sense of profound connection to the people whose material you're working on, which is, of course, just a one-way connection because they don't know it's happening, but there's quite a it's quite emotional. It feels like maybe you get some of that with the building, a real sense of connection to the place doing something like this. I, I hope that people will, are you saying in the design or hopefully yeah, no, I, building this at home? Well, sure. I, for people at home, I'm sure too. But I guess a lot of people that are building this will already have a deep sense of connection. I kind of mean in the design process, really. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll be honest, going into making this model, I, I know quite a bit about Manchester United, but I, I actually knew nothing about Old Trafford going right. into the model. And by the time I was done, I just felt like, wow, this is a like, this is like a home for me now. I know so much about this place, so many of the details, and I have so much appreciation and respect for what this place is and everything that's happened here. It's a, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, as not strictly a Manchester United fan, I kind of find it kind of odd that I have this really special connection with this place. Yeah, I get it. I definitely get it. Um, do you um, do you have a favourite part of the stadium from that experience? Is there something about it that you like in particular? The the thing I'm that's tough, but one of the parts that is really special to me is the supports for the uh, east and west ends. Um, there's, uh, you have these cantilever roofs on the east and west ends. Yeah. And I remember that the first time that I visited the stadium, we stayed at the cricket ground that's yeah kind of a bit to the south of Old Trafford. And so the view of the stadium was of the, uh, of the kind of the megastore, that area from the end so I right. could just see those cantilevers coming out and coming up to support the roof. And at that point, I had made my first version of the model, and it didn't look anything like that. <laughs> so I just remember, see, I remember seeing those cantilevers and just thinking, oh, man, I have a long way to go. <laughs> I really missed the mark here. But I think the end result of what we came to really does a great job of capturing those supports. But then what to me is extra cool about it is they do actually then provide the support for the roof. So they're not just there to look cool and look like the real thing, but they actually function the way that the cantilevers function in the real building. Yeah, that's got to be I think so that's, satisfying. Uh, that's just so fun. So when you, uh, when you work with a real building in this way, do you do it all from sight and from photographs or do you get like access to blueprints and design documents and things like that? We had some blueprints that we worked from when we were making the model, but what helped me the most was when we, it was January 2019, we visited. And me and uh, one of my coworkers, we just walked around the stadium for a couple hours and we actually got to have a tour inside as well. And we just took, took I think we have about 200 photos that we took there. And we just worked from those when making the model because the the blueprint was useful for kind of the top-down plan of how everything came together. But it was really the details of the materials, like the surface finishes, the way, the way that different parts of the stadium came together, that working from photos was really, really helpful for us to get all of that accurate and correct. So it's, um, it's really clear hearing you talk about this that, that you know, you're – your kind of passion for this project, but also clearly just the process in general um, comes really clearly through. But do you have any kind of extra sense of responsibility when you're doing something that people have such a profound emotional connection to? Oh, I, I felt just an incredible responsibility with this model to get everything right and make sure that I didn't miss anything. Um, not having a not having that really deep connection with Manchester United of you know growing up as a fan or yeah. following them through even the last I'd say I've, I've paid pretty close attention to the club for the past almost two years now. Bad uh, timing, but, terrible timing. But, it would have yeah. been so much well, more fun you know, if you'd I'm done that ten years ago. Supporter, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but the the day will come. Yeah, uh, but. It, I, I felt so nervous to, to think, okay, 
I need to make sure that I get that I don't miss anything, that I get everything in here that needs to be here. And then there's one thing just with the significance of the club, but then also like we like I said before, there's 110 years of history in that building. That's that's crazy that the the details of what's important to each each individual person when they come to this place what is it to them that makes old trafford special uh so i think it, it you could almost see it as an advantage that i'm not coming with my own set of perceptions of here's what's important about old trafford to me and instead just being willing to go out and look and try to figure out what's important about old trafford to the people that it's important to yeah. so i think that was actually helpful to not come with those preconceived notions of what is it about this place that makes it special. But there, there were so many things that I was nervous about. Okay. Have I, have I done this right? Have we captured enough of this detail? Uh, what was the, what was the one there's, um, you have all the turnstile entrances around the stadium, mm -hmm. uh, even like inside the Munich tunnel and kind of yeah. all behind the concourses and everything. And we, we made some new printed elements that help us represent those doors. But then I didn't quite have the right numbers in the right places. And I'm just thinking, Oh, I don't, I don't know if this will be okay. I hope people will forgive me for this. Mm. Or, uh, what was one of the other ones? I, I had consulted one of my coworkers that's a, he's from Manchester and he's been supporting United his whole life. Right. Um, I, I had him double check because we actually chose some of the banners that hang inside the stadium. Ah. And, and I went through it with him and I said, okay, these are the ones, these are the ones that I'm through my research, I think are important to include. And he went through and he said, this one, keep this one, keep this one, keep this one, get rid of. Uh, so it was really great to have that little bit of extra backup. We also we also worked quite closely with the club itself, and we got some feedback on things to include and things to not include. But then also having that level of my friend Tim, who could come in and point out what was important to him, really helped me to to kind of get that perfect vision of here's what the club wants, here's what some fans wants, here's what I think is important. And combining all that, I think we were able to make something really special. That's brill. Um, so I'll let you go in just a minute, but just a uh, last couple of questions. So what was the club's involvement? How, how involved were they in the process? So they invited us when we, when we first started talking to them about, hey, we think it could be cool to make this old Trafford model. They invited us over to Manchester to see the stadium and show us around. And then at that point, I actually brought my first version of the stadium along to show to them that I had just made based on pictures I had seen online and some digital files I had found that people had put on the internet. And I, I remember bringing that and showing that to them in the stadium. And I was actually quite embarrassed because at that point, <laughs> now I've seen the real thing and I'm looking at the real thing and I'm looking at what I've done and I'm thinking, oh, I've really missed the mark here. <laughs> but they they were also quite understanding to say, okay, you're you guys are the Lego experts. We're the Manchester United experts. Let's work together. Let's leverage each other's expertise to make this work. So I actually had a lot of free reign on uh, what I could do and in, in where I could make the call and say, this is the right thing to do for this Lego model. But they were really helpful in providing that feedback to say, here are things that we think are important that you need to include. Um, I remember one of the ones was uh, the on the south, east and west corners mm -hmm. you have the you have like a red stripe kind of along the top of the outside of the stadium yeah and i was asking like okay what color is that meant to be because i see it in real life and it looks pretty dark red like mm -hmm. we have a dark red color in lego and i said that looks a lot like our dark red and they said well We'd like it if it was regular red. I think we just need to repaint it. So there are some things like that where they had a vision of this is how we think the stadium's supposed to look versus how it actually looks. Yeah, uh, just and working together to find the right common ground there. That was fun. Brilliant. Uh, and I guess the last question is: This is really now is talking. This is fully Lego rather than United. When you when you have a set like this, um. The level of it seems like it's inherently a complex build for people that want to want to play with it. How do you get the kind of how do you decide where you're going to pitch it in terms of the level of 
complexity? How do you, you kind of measure up the fun versus accessibility versus accuracy kind of dilemma? When we first started to talk about let's do this big stadium, we immediately thought let's make this something that's for uh, like a higher age mark. Normally, uh, what we would call a normal Lego set, we target a child that's somewhere between six and nine years old. But with this one, we knew we want to we want to make it more of like a, almost an experience for adults. So making it quite a bit more complicated to build and make it something that an adult can build and put on display and be proud of. So that's not to say that a kid can't build it, but but we we intentionally from the beginning said let's set the complexity of this thing quite high to make it something that people will when they build it they'll really feel okay I've had this incredible achievement and I've created this thing that I'm really proud of and I really want to you know put it out and show people and talk about it and show them all the all the intricacies and show them the interior and show them the details. Uh, the, the way the model's built, you can actually split it open so you can take off the north and south stands and you can remove the ends so that you can open the model up and kind of get inside. Uh, I was just talking to one of my coworkers about it the other day and he was like, he was telling me, oh yeah, but you know, the big stadiums, they have three levels of stands. And I said, yeah, Old Trafford has three levels of stands. And he said, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and then I could, because he just couldn't see all the way up in there. That third stand is so high up. Yeah. And so I could open up the Lego model and show him and show him it way up in there. <laughs> that was so funny to be able to do that. That is brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I can't wait to play with it myself. I, I think loads of people are going to, that's going to be on an awful lot of Christmas lists uh, come next Christmas. And I'm sure people will be picking up before then as well. Um, yeah, is there, that sounds great. Is there anything um, that you're working on now that you'd like to kind of get an advanced plug for, or is it all super top secret at this point? Oh, then I would, I would get in big, big trouble. <laughs> well, we you never know what that. we're working on here, but we're having. I can't say that we're working on anything, but I'll tell you not to worry. We are having a lot of fun. So <laughs> Brilliant. I'm glad. Thank you very much for your time, Michael. Yeah, That's thanks so much great. for having me on, Paul. Okay, so another massive thanks to Michael for coming on the show. We'll take a quick break and then come back with a Club Bruges preview. Enjoy no question about that. If so, let others know about us. The best way to do that is leave us a review and a rating on iTunes and hit that subscribe button. Ah, Club Bruges, our old friends. Yeah, have Lego done a Club Bruges stadium <laughs> yeah. yet? Maybe not well. They were very, very sort of um, quiet about what they could and couldn't talk about in terms of uh, in terms of what they were working on next, as you heard. I'm, I'm not sure it's in their roster of uh, high-profile partnerships, to be <laughs> no. honest. Um, honestly, I enjoyed that conversation so much. I just left it being like, oh, I wish I could be friends with that guy in real life. He seems cool. Um, but anyway, uh, nice. Club Rouge. Uh, yes. So The second most successful club in the history of Belgian football. Uh, who's the first? Anderlecht. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course they are. Um, they weren't very successful the last time we played them, which, as I think I said when we were drawn against them, is, I mean, no disrespect in this, I think literally the, the last time I thought about them. Yeah. Uh, so what do we know about them? Their manager is Philippe Clement. Still. Still. Oh, Still. Good, he's hanging in there. Unless this is another spell, I'm pretty sure he was the manager last time. It's one of those things where I just, all I remember about these games is writing the preview and having to like do the research ahead of time and uh there's a listener to the show whose name i can't remember who really helped out with that a, a belgian guy who's a, a united fan and and uh, and his local club rouge there is local club simon um, mignolet is in their squad former liverpool oh. keeper um wan's brother clinton is part of the squad no no he's not Cl clinton clinton, clinton matter, matter. <laughs> yeah I, I don't think they're related since uh this one I, appears to be from angola <laughs> it seems unlikely yeah who knows um so this game is at five to six on a thursday afternoon top the classic insulting and it's not like belgium belgium is in eastern europe where that's like a really convenient time zone locally either is it i think that means it'll be five to seven local time in belgium right not 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 a good time to kick off a football match 
and not I just can't get invested in this. I guess the question is, uh, does Odie Nigalo start? Is he cup tied? No, he was in. No. <laughs> I, I don't think so. He's not playing. <laughs> Assuming they registered him in yeah. time. Uh, he What he might do, yeah. Uh, Ollie has certainly rotated in this tournament earlier in the tournament, and there's no reason to believe that Club Bruges are particularly good. In fact, I mean, given the standard of the Belgian league, they won't be. They'll be bottom half of, of uh, the Premier League standard. I'm only saying that because I haven't seen them play one second this season, but given the league rankings, that'll be about how good they are. So, yeah, he could well do. Uh, yeah, they are top of the Belgian league at the moment by quite a long way. Um, they've got... Yeah, which part of the Belgian league, though? It's, you know, there's about 15 different playoff systems in the... It, totally weird, the Belgian league. But yes, uh, I guess they're uh, they're in form and uh, top side in Belgium right now. Uh, yeah. Top analysis, Ed. Yeah. It's good. Anderlecht are only ninth. Ah, rubbish. Um, I don't know. I, I, it's just so hard to talk about the Europa League. It's really late at night here now because we're recording this after the game. So I'm a little bit punchy. Um, and I, I, can't, I just can't get Memphis Depay out of my head because he played so well in that game uh, against Bruges at, at Old Trafford. I think it was at Old Trafford that he played well. Um Memphis, Memphis injured at the moment, mm-hmm. isn't he? I mean, this is a complete aside. Yeah, he's got a knee injury. He spends an awful lot of time on Instagram, sort of strolling down streets with some rando recording yep. him while wearing very interesting outfits. He's very big on motivation, uh, which I'm, I like. I'm, I'm all for positive motivation and positive mental attitude. But there's just something about the way Memphis does it that just doesn't quite hit the spot for me. Um he uh, he played very well against Club Rouge. Who is going to play well against Club Rouge? You said Mason Greenwood's not in favour with Oli Solskjaer. Is that coming from somewhere or is it just coming from the team selection? Just coming from the team selections, yeah. He's he he's not starting in games, given, given Daniel James's performance and given that we played two up front today and James really had no impact even with United playing on the break. Um, it uh, it was all the more surprising that Mason didn't get a go, but uh, he could well do in this one. Depends on the system. Ollie seems to be in favour of this three five two at the moment. Yeah, I'm... if you can call it that five three two, doesn't mean that that will be the the way for this game. Of course, I think we we should play quite a strong side in this game. I think because we play Watford at the weekend, then the second fixture against Bruges, and then Everton the following weekend. So. It's not, well, although Everton are going really well under Carlo Ancelotti. Everton are going yeah. really well. Watford are the kind of game that caused United a lot of trouble, yeah. uh, at, at, especially at Old Trafford. And then after Everton, we've got a big one, I seem to remember. Yeah, Derby County yeah. away. In <laughs> yeah. the, the, Rooney, the Wayne Rooney Derby. No, but I think you might be referring to the uh, Manchester Derby that's happening uh, on the 8th of March. So... Yeah, some big games coming up, and, and but you'd think, given the rest and everything, and given, I guess one of the things we should have mentioned when we talked about the, the City thing is, it looks very much like fifth place will get you Champions League football next season. Um, so maybe winning the Europa League is not quite so crucial, because we could sneak ahead of Sheffield United into fifth place if we try really hard. Uh, <laughs> or Everton. Or, or Wolves. Or Wolves or because it's pretty packed. Spurs or Chelsea. That's, you exactly. Know, two from three of the, two from all those teams. Yeah. All right. I'm going to have a go at picking a team. Sergio Romero in goal. Oh, For is sure. he not? In, I heard he might be injured. Mm. Anyway, if he's not, if it, 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 chance for Lee Grant, yeah. then um, I guess he'll play De Gea instead of Grant if if Romero is injured. Um, then maybe you rest Wan Bissaka and play Dalo. If you play the back three, yeah. I guess he'll play the same back three. Is Lindelof injured? Is that why he's... Yeah, he was he's injured. Yeah, he wasn't on the bench yeah, today, although there is Phil Jones to come into the reckoning. Um, but I, I think he clearly likes Luke Shaw in that position, and, and there's definitely a bit of overlapping centre-back going on, isn't there? Um, and As Shaw and Williams cover each other on the left-hand side. And then I think you play Williams again, uh, if, if you do play the back three. I guess he's going to have to play Matic and Fred. Maybe he plays Pereira. But I think it might be Matic, Fred and Pereira and Fernandes doesn't play in this one. It maybe Can Fernandes play in this one? Was Sporting in Europe this season? 
Uh, yeah, I think they were, but I don't. I think it's wiped out. Oh, okay. Uh, after the group stages, lovely. Yeah, that's convenient. Um, oh, I guess then play Bruno, get him more game time, more used to playing with his teammates, and then maybe maybe rotate Martial and play Greenwood, Igalo, and James. You've got twelve players in there yeah. now. I don't um, think I have. I don't <laughs> think. I think. I think I counted right. I said no, I no Martial. And then... Yeah, you, you swapped our two, two up front for three up front. <laughs> but no, did I pick three midfielders? I, th- I think you oh, did. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you're going for a pretty radical 5-2-3 <laughs> formation, no, no. which maybe you are, yeah. Um, well, yeah. So leave out I mean, James then and play the devastating front two of Mason Greenwood and Odia Nogalo. Maybe, maybe, maybe so, yeah. It, there's, there's not a lot of options in midfield. Although if... A uh, a round of thirty two game against Club Bruges is not a time to to give some players a break against a yeah you know, ahead of a a bunch of tough games. I, I don't know when is so you know Pereira and Mata will come into the reckoning because of that alone. Yeah. Okay. Um. And then we're gonna do a show after that. I'm working. I'm working yeah. in the middle of that game, so I will see the beginning and the end of it. Um. But we'll uh, we'll we'll do our best to cover that game for you, and then preview the Everton game and all that. So that'll do for the show today. A massive massive thanks to Lego and and Michael Psyche for for talking to us. And um, Patreon backers, stay tuned for an absolutely relentless dose of very concerted Manchester City bashing done from the absolute moral high ground. Absolutely, and everyone else. Uh, we'll see you later in the week. Thanks for that.